0: Kia ora koutou everyone and welcome to the weekly hoon of gallery walks. And we're here in uh, Parliament's uh, Press Gallery studio with Janae Tibshrini from interest.co.nz. Hello Janae.
1: Hey Bernard.
0: Great to see you, and I hear that you're off to join Thomas Coughlin at the New Zealand Herald in the uh, Press Gallery office for the New Zealand Herald. Is that right?
1: Yeah, that's right. I have an, another month at Interest, and then I'm I'm going to the mainstream media, or back back to the mainstream media after seven um, fantastic years at Interest. I'm going to become the Wellington business editor for the Herald. So that's exciting. Great,
2: great career move. I've got to say, I, I'm <laughs> completely unbiasedly. Like,
0: <laughs> yes, and uh, also you can hear in the background there, uh, Thomas Coglin here from the New Zealand Herald's uh, Press Gallery office, and um, both very clearly with the mainstream media, I, I was particularly proud of setting up the Press Gallery office for interest all those years ago, with the very aim actually of uh, having an office in the Press Gallery, um, just to plonk our flag in the mainstream media uh, landscape, um, really good to see you both. So I wanted to start off with the marijuana plant, which started sprouting in the gardens of Parliament. Perhaps someone on the protest a spread a seed a few weeks ago, and it's... Um, it's really good to see the lawns around Parliament are coming back to life. Nature is healing. <laughs>
2: uh,
0: um, uh, Thomas, what did you think of uh, how Parliament's grounds are recovering with a few uh, extra bits and pieces?
2: Uh, well, Parliament's grounds look great, I think. Uh, I'm a, oh, sorry, getting close to the microphone. I'm a, um, I'm a, a, a grass enthusiast of the traditional kind. Um, my dad loves to grow lawn. Uh, has he he's, he obsesses over uh, as, as all good South Island men do over good lawns? Uh, he particularly particularly likes the English style where you get the hatching on the grass. You know where the lines go one way, and then then you have ho- the vertical lines going one way, the horizontal lines obviously crossing them, and it looks very nice. It's how they do it. You've spent M- a, long, the a lot of time thinking about it. Well, this. he's t- <laughs> he's told me about this, and he likes his lawns done a particular way, which was. Um, uh, quite difficult growing up because I, you know, had to help out. Um, so I, I, as a, as the son of a lawn enthusiast, I am very impressed by the way the lawn is regrowing. It's coming back, um, br- br- and, and impressed with the other grass. <laughs> you <know>, well, uh, <laughs> the bee, well, Parliament. We, all, we have Bellamy's here, and Bellamy's has gone up market with Logan Brown uh, having the contract now, and they've been trying to grow their own vegetables and produce in Parliament and have done for some time. So there is a wee vegetable garden behind the library, and it's great to see that perhaps um, other uh, industrious uh, New Zealanders are using the grounds good. to also you grow know, their own produce. That's right, self-sufficient. We're, we're all good. Yeah. Just what was Nandor Tangos doing? Anyway.
1: On, the, on the topic of um, growing vegetables, I... Ran into Adrian, or the governor of the Reserve Bank, oh, just on the, on the corner wow. of the street <coughs> by um super by, segue. Yeah, by the Reserve Bank, and the Reserve Bank is also growing vegetables. It's growing vegetables. Yes, wow. he told me they, they pointed don't it out. Money. They don't just print money. They have a vegetable garden on the corner of um of the main main two streets. Does, there, it, so does it look like
0: they've got a money tree growing in the corner there at all? Uh, yeah, something like that. Oh, <laughs> that's good. Save that uh, one for a good line are they growing?
1: I, I don't know, but I, I did laugh because, <laughs> anyway, it was a funny encounter with the governor on this bicycle electric thing pointing out the uh, vegetable garden and um, <laughs> it was quite... Well, well, Wellington's a funny place it, it is.
0: Yeah. And, um, you know, there was a very good paper from the IMF this week about central banks using uh, capital controls. Perfectly legitimate thing to do these days, you know, as we all start to... uh, Live in our own borders and start to think that maybe this globalisation thing is uh, coming to an end. Um, Thomas, have you been sort of thinking and watching around the place at uh, whether this globalisation or deglobalisation is a real trend or not?
2: Um, Well, (laughs) no more than. Big uh, question. Big question. Yeah, I mean, everyone talks a good game on deglobalisation, and I think. I mean, even since, uh, like Obama started to talk about um de-globalization a little bit, with you know, he, he tried to put some political pressure on Apple to onshore some of their um, some of their their computer manufacturing, and, and Apple, I think briefly did they brought back, they they tried to make one of their very upmarket, um, very expensive, uh, I think that the Mac Pro or something that they briefly tried to make that in America, maybe they still do. Um, but the, you know the proof of the pudding is as they say in the in the eating. Um, and I, I guess, like, obviously yeah, everyone is talking a good game about deglobalization. And I think, and I think now um, now there's actually a financial imperative to, to talk a good game about, um, about deglobalization. Previously there was just a political kind of... You could, you could make political hay by, to, by talking about deglobalization because it was polit- politically popular to bring back some of those manufacturing jobs to your own countries. Now, obviously, that with supply chain... Um, Supply chain disruption. There is a financial um, and a, a, um, incentive to perhaps bring back some stuff to 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 a more sort of stable supply chain. Uh, but I mean, uh, I I still think it's, a, it's it's really it's a hard one to know. And I, you know, I it's just a humble journalist. It's, I can't really put numbers on it. But you would think that that the real prize is to people who can create massive, more dispersed, more diverse supply chains who are more resilient to this sort of. Shock! When you look at the complexity of the stuff that we we want and consume, you, you know, incredibly complicated microchips that that, are, that have minerals mined in Africa and are assembled in Taiwan. You know that, that you can't make that in Kansas. You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, uh, so I, I do think, like, I, I, I do think we 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 will see some onshoring, and probably not even in New Zealand, right? It's, it'd be very hard to find the, the number of workers in the current labour market to to actually open up factories to make our own stuff again. Um, but you know, anyway, we'll see. Janae,
0: um, the other big news this week was the fallout from this apparent deal the Solomon Islands has done. To uh, allow Chinese troops and ships to park themselves in the Solomon Islands, which the Prime Minister uh, was surprisingly open and uh, um, disappointed and unhappy about.
1: Yes, I think the militarisation of the Pacific is a topic that's been on a lot of uh, academics' minds. It's one of those topics that gets talked about quite a lot in international relations circles and something that the government has always been very wary of. I know uh, we had the Pacific Reset, which was the, the strategy uh, that the prior coalition government um, launched. And so, so here's here's an example of, of, of China... Um, what it sounds like is potentially militarising the region, and that, that is, a, is a key route. So that is hands down uh, worrying, and uh, potentially. And look, I'm not an expert in this, so uh, but but it could it could mean that once again, New Zealand's put in that position where it might be more difficult to separate our economic and our uh, political ties. We can't keep um, potentially. Being on board with the US and, and that crowd politically, but uh, having that that great business relationship with China. Well, actually, I don't know. That is the question. Can we keep balancing that? And it, that's that's tricky. And, and just going back to the globalization chat before, New Zealand needs globalization. We are a tiny island on the bottom of the world. Um, I wonder whether we'll, we'll just see more regionalization again. Um, so not not so global, but more regional trade and. Um, yeah,
0: so, I hope, I yeah. hope that, um, you know, the trade continues. But the fear is that China gets pulled behind the Iron Curtain with Russia and that the Americans who are now pretty hot and bothered about what both Russia and China are doing and the Europeans who now feel like they're physically threatened by, by the East, so to speak, uh, are also um, keen on uh, at least globalisation with us.
2: <laughs> and we, 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 one of the sort of like quieter stories that i've been trying to sort of tease out over the last few weeks has been that the massive trade deficit that we posted recently and, and it's a, you know it's just a obviously the, a lot of this is a function of the current kind of war the, the um the 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 fallout from COVID 19 and and um and subsequent data sets will, will probably show the effects of the war in terms of the prices of oil that we're importing but it is it is you know if, if this if um like anything that's happening at the moment, like inflation, if that massive trade deficit does not sort of show signs of um, of of um, shrinking, um, that could become a massive problem for us. And, and again, to the deglobalization issue, well, if we can't uh, export tourism, uh, well, if we can't you know import tourists to export you know whatever <laughs> to China, if we're if we're unable to um, to to bring in um, to export uh, milk milk powder to China, um, if we're unable to, to, to you know, if, uh, international education as an export, which again we're hugely dependent on China for, like, New Zealand needs uh, trade because we, we, there's no way that, that we can nah. sustain ourselves. No, nah, we uh, don't need trade. We, we just t- need
0: a real estate market <laughs> and buying each other's houses off each other. It's what surprised me actually about the last two years. You know, we, we have this view in our heads that New Zealand is a trading nation, that we depend on our exports If you look at our export and import share of our economy, it's one of the lowest in the OECD. And that's because increasingly the part of the economy exposed to the rest of the world, particularly exports, we haven't really grown much or done much with in recent years because our currency's been too strong. And uh, although we've we've developed some interesting areas around IT, and obviously there was the growth of um, uh, tourism and international education. What, yeah, we are. What's, what's really interesting and surprising and fantastic in a way is that we lost two of our top five export industries overnight. Yet our currency is pretty much exactly where it was before COVID. And actually uh, our export receipts in total are higher. And that's because, uh, luckily for us, we could export lots of uh, dairy and meat and logs and fish and wine to China and the rest of the world. And we actually didn't skip a beat. You know, we've got three percent unemployment after we lost two of our top five export industries. Uh, who needs to export and import? We can just just um, borrow money and. Buy each other's houses and go down to Harvey Norman. You guys are about to go and work for an organization that's partly funded by consumption of of, of, of couches and and TVs.
2: It's great. Great company, Harvey Norman.
0: (laughs) 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 Um, uh, Harvey Norman should win a a, A Voyager Voyager Award for all those front pages.
1: Keeping
2: the media going. Yeah,
1: more front pages than than any journalist. Yeah. So just on that another just so another angle to this whole deglobalization thing is uh, the rise of uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency people who are very pro-globalisation, anti-nation-state kind of vibe, uh, you know, have lost... I feel disenfranchised by uh, central banks around the world and the control that they have over monetary systems, and they've found their own sort of uh, currency. little currency. And... Uh, uh you know and and regulators are keeping close tabs on that and i think trying to bring some regulation to it but but it is interesting how there whilst we're going back to uh potentially more manufacturing in in your own country there is this group that's doing something quite different Uh, and i don't know how it's it's hard to know because these are people we don't see They're people who are in their homes on their computers potentially very wealthy doing things most of us don't quite understand but, but they're there.
0: And there's also a lot of New Zealanders who are trading in crypto. When you look at the surveys of what proportion of shares these owners uh, are trading crypto, it's a, it's a double-digit percentage number of the population with the focus, mm. particularly on, on young people. And um, sadly, it's just a big old punt uh, on, on a leveraged um, uh, win in the, in the crypto market.
1: And actually, it's becoming quite mainstream now too. I note that Invest Now, which is an um, investment platform that you can go and invest in various investment funds by sort of mainstream um, fund managers. They have a, new- a newish fund on there, which is like a, a Bitcoin fund. So, if I don't know how to buy and sell Bitcoin online, which which I don't, <laughs> embarrassingly, I can. But I do have an Invest Now account. I can invest my money in this fund along with my investments in you know Milford funds or whatever, ANZ ones. Just Mainstream ones, um, which is the, uh, the, the mainstreaming of it, which I yeah. thought was quite an interesting product. Yeah. I haven't looked into it. I don't. Uh, yeah, no, this is this I mean, not this an is, encouragement. <laughs> no, <but.
0: laughs> not investment advice. No, the the, the whole um, shock to the global trading political system is uh, um, shaking loose some really interesting things. And you're right, giving another life to crypto. In fact, Bitcoin is not far off where it was just before the war started. And ironically, the Russian Ruble is actually higher now than where it was just before the war started. Um, That's what happens when the central bank controls the capital flows. We managed to get back to capital flows in the end.
2: I've got about 15 pounds of Bitcoin, and I can't remember what the password is. Oh, no! Actually, no, I don't. I bought 15 pounds of Bitcoin about four years ago. Oh, no, that's probably... 100 that, pounds or something Exactly.
0: This is always, you hear these great stories yeah, no, about people who've, yeah, no. who've got hard drives so in, bad. In, in their garages that right. they just cannot find.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've got an uncle who I think has, has thousands of dollars in Bitcoin, but same issue. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I we need to write it down or we'll choose an obvious password. Yeah, yeah.
0: No, um, moving on to other flows. Transmission Gully was the big event in in around Wellington uh, this week, and it's a political and economic event as well as a you know a physical. Let's jump on the road and drive to the Kapiti Coast as fast as we possibly can to get away from the absolutely awful we- weather in Wellington. Um, uh, Thomas, you you are uh, adjacent to um, lots of. Uh, uh, Coverage of Transmission Gully, <laughs> and you've been around yes. Parliament for enough years to know that um, it's an obsession of this place, but also, you know, a, an illustration of the uh, failures, in a way, of our political investment um, process. Um, what did you think this week of the final opening of Transmission Gully?
2: It was funny. I um, Yeah, I, we, we covered it, and um, I... Um, I actually had an interview with the prime minister uh, the day after it got covered. Uh, it opened, sorry, and uh, um, and we uh, so I, I went up and, and um, we were chatting before the interview, and she, as an Auckland, just just sort of said like people were really like excited by that opening. They were euphoric. What it, like as a Wellingtonian, what is it about Transmission Gully that that gets people going? And and I just sort have of had to say, well. You know, I honestly don't know. <laughs> don't, don't know. But even it's funny, you know, Prime Minister opens a lot of stuff, um, and even she was struck by the fact that this was no ordinary opening of of something. You know, you, Prime Ministers are, they happen like one thing a week. Um, this is the been, biggest
0: ribbon she's ever cut.
2: This is the biggest ribbon she's ever cut to be fair. One point two billion dollars. Not often you open you open something with one point two billion dollars. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, for Wellington. I guess Wellington's a city where more things close than open, um, thanks to earthquakes <laughs> and infrastructure issues. Um, you know, the only thing that, that sometimes the only stuff that opens are like holes in the ground with water coming out of them. So it's big. It's a big issue for Wellington. Wellington has a as a capital city. It's, it has an embarrassing level of infrastructure. Um, and right, transmission gully was you know mooted 109 years ago, and was probably seriously has been seriously considered for 40 or so years um, and it probably should have been built um, many many uh, years ago now that we're building it now it probably shouldn't be built um, because of climate change so <laughs> so you know there's that that irony that the time we're building it is the time when we, we should probably be building something else but I mean it's a, as with all roads and stuff it's, it's a symbolic kind of opening it's it's um' It it's huge for um, the Carpentie Coast because that existing road is dangerous um, and uh, and and it does block frequently at the weekends and peak times. So um, and it is a it is a great new way to get the hell out of Wellington. It's a great when, way to get
0: out of Wellington when there is an earthquake. Yeah. Um, Janae, you're you're a transplanted uh, Wellingtonian, but from the north where it is sunnier and drier and warmer. Uh, um, <laughs> oh. what, what's your what's your thoughts about Transmission Gully?
1: Um. I'm not that excited. It's probably because I don't uh-huh. drive that um, route that often. Uh, but, I mean, like, I'm just excited to see some infrastructure. I guess that, built, that, that Actually, finished. yeah, there's <laughs> been lots of talk about infrastructure, so here's a piece. But, I, I mean, I don't really have a hot take on this at all. For those people who are on that route, I'm sure it's very useful. Um, I, The Waterview Tunnel in Auckland is one that I love. Yes. Um, it, 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 It's... Streamlined, uh, you can get around that part of the city much more quickly. So, for, for people, you know, if it does mm. affect your commute, that that's pretty great. Although the, the train is also very useful um, where that transmission gully road is, isn't it?
2: The Waterview Tunnel is actually a great piece of infrastructure for Wellingtonians visiting Auckland. <laughs> <laughs> <So> <laughs> it makes it no, very, no that
0: was why it was built. <laughs> yeah. Yeah,
2: makes it very easy to get into the. So, you know, my theory is that is that the Waterview Tunnel is um, is actually a piece of Wellington infrastructure. Um, which we b- we built in Auckland. Oh, good! <laughs> write know. that in the New Zealand Herald yeah. <laughs> on the should.
0: front page and see what happens. <laughs> I'll
2: write it in my resignation. Letter. <laughs> but um, but yeah, I like it's uh, it's. I think it's Janae's right. It's, you know, it's, and if you if you live up there on the on the Kapiti coast, like seven to fifteen minutes. Um, and and it's particularly like like sometimes those traffic jams are huge. And I don't know, if you if you have like a family, um, and you have sports games in the town at the weekends, like Wellington traffic at the weekend is terrible. Um. It will make it easier to, yeah. um, think, yeah. but obviously at a cost of one
0: point. It is, it is a, I, yeah. I find it a fascinating um, uh, illustration or a case study of how long it takes for politics and government to make big things happen, but also the great irony that the people who often oppose things are the ones who get to open them. <laughs> And uh, we saw Jacinda Ardern and Grant Robertson and Michael Wood out there at Paikokariki on Wednesday morning um, cutting the ribbon and getting the congratulations. But um, Labor never really wanted that road, even though they dangled it as a carrot in front of Peter Dunn in 2002 (laughs) and 2005 to get him on board as as an MP to back their government. Um, He included it in his deal with... uh, John Key in 2008 to become part of that government. And uh, there was risks taken and um, arguably d- the wrong decisions taken because it's a project that didn't wash its own face and had a BCR benefit-to-cost ratio of less than one. And certainly with the PPP um, project, which uh, has seen a blown out a blowout in costs um, and also just by their nature a more expensive funding arrangement, Uh, It has, um, I I think, at least uh, set back the prospects of big PPPs uh, for transport for quite some time. It's a a pity in a way, because what it's done is it's yet again um, made it look that the government is quite bad at building infrastructure on time and on budget, and... uh, I just wonder whether this thing could ever have been done on time and on budget. But um, it, it will be um, interesting to see whether it's one of those political things that people bank. Now that it's there, they move on to the, to the next thing. And this week, the other big event was the uh, uh, move today, April the 1st, in benefits, which the government uh, tried to make a big deal of. These are a benefit increases that were essentially put in place at the budget last year but have been dragged into this debate about costs of living. Uh, Janae. there was some really interesting exchanges, I thought, in Question Time and in the general debate on Tuesday and Wednesday between uh, Christopher Luxon and the Prime Minister on Tuesday, but also in particular uh, Nicola Willis and Grant Robertson on Wednesday, in which they went at it hammer and tongs, the argument being from the opposition that uh, hard average Kiwis... Uh, which you could say is a code for um, people who vote national and might vote national, are uh, doing it tough. And the way to solve this is some uh, tax threshold changes, which would give some hu- uh, relief for people who are doing it tough. Uh, uh, the government's come back and said, well, actually, that's not the right solution, because if you do it that way, you're going to have to cut health and education costs and actually the threshold changes in tax just deliver a few bucks for those people who need it most and thousands of dollars for opposition opposition leaders who maybe don't need the money. How, how do you think this is playing out politically, this cost of living crisis contest, and how the government's responding and whether the opposition is uh, making this um, javelin land?
1: Mm. Good, good questions. Uh, I think the opposition is making the the javelin land actually because anything that affects anyone's back pocket, every single time they go to the supermarket, the, the petrol station, anything like that, you look at your bill and you go, oh my goodness. L- last night, uh, uh, went out for a couple of drinks. We bought two drinks, one each, and uh, thirty one dollars. And you know, I was like, how how is this? It's mm. you know. Anyway, this is hard. This is hardly a crisis. A of hardworking w- Kiwis. Hardworking right? Kiwis. Hard <laughs> average hardworking kiwi. Yeah, yeah, kiwi. Yeah, I shouldn't have said that. We should, we should delete all of that. <laughs> anyway, um, well, just one, get one, drink <laughs> yeah, time, one drink and two straws. Yeah, next time, one drink and two straws. Um, but I think the a uh, lot of the debate that we're going to see is around ways to alleviate the pressures of inflation. And do you target that? Uh, do you target that? Uh, support or do you keep it broad and broad types of support like tax cuts and um, fuel excise duty cuts I think actually politically quite popular because people can get their heads around it they go oh that's great I can I can see the benefits of it whereas then if you say right we're going to tweak the welfare system and increase this tax credit like this and this little thing by that politically people don't necessarily understand it as as easily and it might not have as much political punch that is of course not to say that is not the a good way to do it and, and I, I do like targeting uh, actually I don't feel like I, I deserve to get uh, uh, pay less petrol at the pump because I can afford it but I do want to, to make sure that it's um, targeted but, but I, and I think actually the the government is feeling that, that pressure because they uh, set up interviews with journalists with the Prime Minister, mm. as Thomas can talk it was about,
2: very, yeah, it was, yep,
1: yep. Uh, to talk about some of these changes. The Prime Minister doesn't give one-on-one interviews often at all. The fact that she's given one-on-one interviews to talk about these changes, I think, mm. really uh, says something.
0: So she gave one to Henry Cook and uh, one to yourself. Was there any others as well? Um, do we know?
2: Uh, she, uh, the tallies the, the had something, I think, this morning, um, but it, I do not think it was a one-on-one. Um, oh, yeah. But but she did she did yesterday there was a there was a big um, media uh, event at kindergarten in Padua. Perfect site for a um, for the the, the changes. Uh, it was within sight of transmission gully, which was <laughs> two it for was, one special. It was, the, the gully was was, it was like a big asphalt halo over <laughs> Pottadoo, and you could see it and actually hear it. Um, and delivering for New, delivering for New Zealanders. Delivering for New Zealanders. And uh, it and is truly the year of delivery. It was the year too. of the delivery, and we we rolled up we we rocked up to this, the full car park at the kindergarten. Um, where she was able to talk about the, uh, the changes that, that kicked in on April 1. Um, and there was some you know, great footage of the Prime Minister uh, in. Because, um, on the face of it, it's a significant did.
0: chunk of money it's $60, huge. $60 yeah, yeah. on average per week to 100,000 families through changes to working for families, increases in benefits, and also the move to wage indexation
2: indexation. for benefits, uh, although
0: not to chunks of working for families, which is an interesting issue. And uh, I've been quite uh, surprised at the uh, attacks from the left, if you like, against the, um, the relative scale of the benefit cuts. We saw... The A couple of um, uh, child poverty activist groups come out this week and uh, say that the government's benefit uh, increases are not enough, that using the uh, welfare experts advisory group models for what is a sufficient income, and updating it for the latest cost increases means that for some families, even after these uh, benefit increases today, uh, on Friday, April 1st, that, that many families will still be upwards of $300 a week behind where they need to be and where their Welfare ex- Experts Advisory Group recommended three years ago they should be. Do you think, the Thomas, do you think the government um, is responding to that or uh, feels under pressure or... Um, uh, has has got mm. the balance right, as as the finance minister well, might say.
2: So the the, the 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 fear of futures, I think, was one of those one of the groups that, that came out with those numbers, and the numbers were really interesting. So they they had, I think, one hundred and sixty five dollars a week was the was the figure for a family with two children, um, and that would that would that would bring your uh, your 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 living um, income to a, a level of. Uh, uh, some subsistence, I guess, and then they, they said up to $300 a week for the cost of participating in society, which included stuff like kids' sports. I actually put that to the Prime Minister yesterday and, and sort of said, you know, on principle, like, you know, is my benefits about subsistence or are they about, you know, do you believe in, at least in principle that people on a benefit should be able to participate in society, do stuff like kids' sports, and she says she absolutely did. She absolutely did believe that, that, that people on a so benefit should not just subsist. Bit, but so I'm, a, I'm hoping
0: someone asked why didn't you do it. Why, yes, didn't well that, a Why didn't question. you do
2: the work for well, Experts Advisory she, Group? Uh, she believes that, that, that the, the, the debate is slowly shifting now. So there are two points. Um, She's in charge of the freaking the, budget. Well, she can
0: say, so I'm going to make the, the in-work tax credit apply to the kids of beneficiaries as well as people who are working. And we could... Uh, mm. Properly index those benefits. She's in charge of the budget. Well, she, really.
2: she she made the case that sometimes it's not as bad as it looks, and people often use comparisons with when you look at core benefit rates and just take that number, but you ignore stuff like the accommodation um, allowance and other kind of ancillary benefits that are often used, you know, put on top of, to put on top of those so, benefits. So, not still not great. Um, the it'll, welfare it'll experts advisory
0: group told her she needed to go with yeah, that five, five billion, and, uh, yeah. and at, at best. Um, what we've had is various n- um, nudgings and increases, which have got maybe two-thirds of the way there, yeah. even though um, the government spent $20 billion in cash on wage subsidies. Um, for example, the um, shifting of the in-work tax credit and making sure that the kids or people who are on benefits get that, as well as those people on uh, on working for families who are working, um, $650 million would make a huge difference for 100,000 kids Yet the government's refusing to do it, and um, uh, not that the opposition is uh, arguing that they should either. Uh, it was interesting the responses in the house uh, to various questions um, from the opposition along the lines of uh, um, why can't the government get more people off the benefit and into work, which uh, you can see you can start to see the political strategy of the opposition here, which is very much to edge away from um, any sort of uh, uh, um, uh, Boris Johnson-style levelling-up um, uh, attempt to simply, right, we're going for the middle. We don't want the bottom
2: feeders. Well, I think that's that, and that's, I mean, particularly this week, I think that's something that you could really see happening this week, where we sort of began th- this week with the, those those bottom feeder, or well, the response to the bottom feeder remarks. Uh, and then, yeah, I, I thought those those remarks were were... were Taken a wee bit out of context by some people on Twitter who were talking about them, and then sort of Chris Luxon then explained them, and appeared to sort of d- double d- like he didn't distance himself from them as much as I thought he would. So I so I actually then you know, sort of changed my view, and I thought, well, that's, this is actually um, you know he's not he he does not completely endorse the whole bottom Vita kind of um, uh, label, but but he didn't he didn't exactly distance himself from that um, that critique either, and then then uh, on. Um, Thursday, uh, the day before the, the, the benefit increases kicked in they put out a statement about the squeeze middle and they, they attacked the squeeze middle line quite um, heavily in the house so I, I think that, that that is I think the nationals sort of started this they started the cost of living um, debate with the, the, net, the state of the nation speech and that tax cut promise tax um, bracket indexation promise um, and they kind of uh, positioned it as a way of addressing the cost of living crisis by saying here is here is the extra money that we can give all New Zealanders to help them meet the cost of living. Labour's then pushed back on that, saying that actually you know a lot of people, not just you know not just some people, but a lot of people are going to be getting you know single figure dollars a week from that tax pledge. Um, you're going to be getting two two dollars a week if you're on some of the you know very low income. You could be getting you know nine dollars a week if you're actually on a decent income. Uh, this is not going to help you address the cost of living crisis. So national, nationals completely scrapped that line of, of defence and then are pivoting completely towards that squeeze middle attack, which is, you know, people who are earning $70,000, $80,000 a year uh, who aren't going to benefit from many of the cost of living changes that the government's doing to sort of shore up the, the bottom, um, but who are nonetheless feeling a bit, you know... Um, yeah, I must horror. say,
0: I'm being surprised at how Christopher Luxon has not, you know... Pivoted left, John Key style, before the election, with you know visits to um, de- deprived areas and uh, promising to um, you know uh, uh, even up the country. Uh, that that, that yeah. tax cut uh, policy, I know it's very early days, and there's going to be a lot more um, tax policies and budget policies to be wrapped around it as we get closer to the election. But um, there was no attempt to say this was you know. Uh, in any way um, equity neutral whereas when you look at the tax switch that John Key and Bill English um, announced in 2010-11 they were at pains to say you know we've juggled with working for families we've taken into account the effects of GST and changed the income tax so that it is distributionally neutral to avoid the issue of um, being accused of you know just um Slashing slashing taxes to make rich people even richer. Do you know? Mm,
1: yeah, I mean, distributional impacts of a policy is a concept that I is really front of mind for me now after um, really studying the the distributional impacts of the government's response to the COVID nineteen crisis, which Bernard has. Um, talked and and written about extensively as well um as as have you thomas um as have you as have i yes yes um you know (laughs) it's a (laughs) three-pronged attack we we love this yeah distributional (laughs) impacts assessment very important um on the the nationals tax uh policy this indexation uh policy something good to think about as well as to think well you can support and the indexation of of the system um but you have to make sure those thresholds are fair f- to begin with. So I think that that's where the tricky thing is. The, the, the government could actually support what Nationals is doing, but you want to just maybe look at where those um, thresholds are to begin with, and then you adjust them for inflation from a starting point that everyone agrees is, is the right. Starting yeah, because you know
0: these indexing these um, thresholds is going to be a constant issue unless you somehow bake it in with an indexation uh, policy like we've done with um, New Zealand superannuation and now the benefits, which is a very good thing, uh, to take it out of the politics, if you like, to essentially turn it into an administrative exercise. Uh, However, it's very convenient for governments to effectively do a stealth tax... (laughs) increase by not changing those thresholds and letting nominal GDP do its work, particularly at times of high inflation. Mm. And if you want to get your budget back into surplus real fast, well, one way to do it um, and to get rid of the debt in GDP terms is to uh, accidentally on purpose engineer an inflation spike. Uh, which gives you lots of nominal GDP growth, which, because of the fiscal drag you've got, um, ploughs money into your budget and turns you into surplus pronto. Um, it's working very well for the government. We're going to get a, a budget you know, on May the 19th, which is going to probably, even after you know a good six to ten million dollars worth of operational allowance, uh, and extra chunky money there, still get probably back to surplus in the next year or two, which is yeah, extraordinary.
2: You know, uh, the British Chancellor delivered his spring state. They had this mini-budget thing over there. And they this is the point uh, that, that you make. You know, the, the British public finances are in absolute disarray. But, but the Chancellor was able to, to come to Parliament and say, look at all this fiscal headroom. You know, <laughs> <and> because, <laughs> look! More yeah, yeah. well, good news, um, but and, and that's all come from wage inflation, um, and which is feeding through into um, into fiscal drag from the, the, the brackets. Mm-hmm. Um, but it manifests itself as massive fiscal headroom because um, you have this surprisingly large tax take.
0: Yeah, well, and news. and what it does is illustrate again how unbalanced our tax system is. We've got a fantastic, broad-based, low-rate system for everything except for wealth and uh, capital gains. And again, with this. Um, rule of median voting target, uh, target-driven target politics that you never touch the capital gains tax, it just reinforces uh, how that limit on the tools of government is continuing to limit um, what can be done to the extent where the government should have done a lot more in terms of distributing cash grants to those people at the low end, in a way like um, the Australian government's just announced this week. With cash payments of up to $450 uh, per household for those on low to middle incomes and people who are getting superannuation benefits, albeit it's Scott Morrison's last gasp attempt to try not to lose the election that'll be in a few weeks' time. Uh, But, you know, when a Conservative government is doing across-the-board cash handouts, and a Labour-Green government here isn't, simply because um, they can't get a wealth tax across the line and because they're still wedded to this idea of getting GDP down, a debt to GDP down to 20 to 30% of GDP, uh, like some sort of um, heat-seeking fiscal missile, like it always has for 30 years. Uh, It it has put us in a position where, you know, demand for food parcels at at the city city missions is through the roof. We've got a million dollars a day being spent on motels for... um, Uh, thousands of kids to be growing up in motels it's a it's a it's from my point of view um, a a, a limiting of the Overton window of where we can debate our fiscal futures to the point where you know um, hundreds of thousands of people are living in in grinding poverty.
1: Mm. Um, Just Bernard going back to the point on tax and on the capital gains tax and and property lack of wealth tax we should acknowledge though that the removal of interest deductibility and the extension of the bright line test, which are two uh new tax changes that target property investors, could be quite significant actually. I think the removal of interest deductibility and also the bright line test if you buy or sell investment property within. 10 years you have to pay income tax on the gain Mm. which for some people could be 39% which could actually be which if we had a broad-based capital gains tax you'd be paying you could put it at say 20% so I don't know if people Mm. have comprehended that actually the opposition to capital gains tax property investors might be worse off actually with Yep and they're um, looking the, forward to a national government who with, will remove yeah, it remove yeah. it and, and before the, before the, like before the it 10 in.
0: years kicks in that's yeah. one of the problems and there are of course the 60% of the population who live in the uh, who occupy their own homes who are not touched by it. Um, yeah. I uh,
1: was that's upset. sorry it's n- a debate. nice clean capital gains tax I just want to say on this the tax thing the tax accountants are very upset because of the way these taxes inter- intersect with each other is mm-hmm. very complicated and um, if we just had a, a clean capital gains tax, it's much easier, and also for mm. everyone who's um you know people in my parents demographic of s- sitting on these homes which have just quadrupled in value uh, selling them off for their retirements, no, no tax if it's, if it's the family home. so yeah,
2: it was a very yeah. strong argument for making it apply to everything because you are especially just it's like the, the it's funny that the political debate could move to like beleaguered second home buyers, who people who've had had help buying their first home and are then seeing their kind of wealth sort of taxed away to buy their second home if they they did have help, you know, uh, co-investors as it were. Um, And those second uh, home buyers would be at a disadvantage compared to people who who had not had help or who had bought before the Brightline um, uh, changes were brought in. You'd, you'd, You'd... see people on a different footing, right? If you're if you're if you're trying to use uh, if you you and your parents go in a house together, the parents' share would be an investment share, so that would get taxed. Uh, so you're you're going to buy that second home with with less income r- from that first home than someone who yeah. who is otherwise. It's a blinking mess, home. isn't it? Um, it's, is, a, it's a huge mm. it's it's, a huge
0: mess. That's frankly another reason for a um, simple, broad based uh, Tax on the land of uh, the the residential. Uh the value of residentially zoned land well, for everyone. funny, you
2: should say, because we're, we're clearing out our office, very sort of uh, tangential, but we're, we're clearing out our office at the moment. We've got an archive of all the old budgets going back to the 1960s, which I've been sort of like beliefing through. Uh, oh, of, I hope like, you're keeping uh, them. We you are, yeah, we're absolutely, we're, we're absolutely keeping uh, keeping these old budgets. So, but I was reading one of uh, Robert Muldoon's old budgets uh, yesterday, um, which is funny for many reasons. Uh, the, probably the funniest for, for you two is that the monetary policy section of his budget speech comes before the fiscal policy oh, budget. So he just talks about you know what he's but the the most interesting lines are, are the fact that there is a there's something that they called a property speculators tax and a land tax and I think a land tax is probably like precursor to rates but I'm 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 trying I want to work out what, what no was there the was problem. a land
0: tax that was quietly dropped in the early 1990s uh, and, and and the
2: property speculators tax
0: uh, there were various taxes around before Muldoon a lot of them got cleaned out and in fact one of the really interesting debates and I'll, we'll end on this because um, people have <laughs> lives <laughs> and jobs but. Um, one of the great debates around the capital gains tax and the, the flattish broad-based obsession which was a pretty good one generally uh, in the late 80s, early 90s was that Roger Douglas when you when you talk to him about the reforms and how we've ended up with the situation where we're not taxing wealth or capital gains he always intended to have a capital gains or to include capital gains in the regime for a simple income tax a one one-rate income tax, but which cap- captured capital gains, and the idea was that um, at some point we'd bring capital gains into the regime and it would all be fair and perfectly efficient and flat and broad-based, but that was the thing that never quite got there.
2: Not even Roger Douglas. No.
0: Hey, great to have you in here today, a really fun chat around um, fiscal, economic, and political matters, and uh, I, uh, I want to thank you both, and um Looking forward to seeing you around the gallery and in a few weeks' time in, in the same office, uh, generally. Um, Thomas Coglin, uh, senior political reporter for the New Zealand Herald here in the Press Gallery. Janae uh, uh from Interest.co.nz, but who in a few weeks will be the Wellington business editor for the New Zealand Herald as well. Great to have you in. Thank you very much.
2: Thanks for having
1: me. Yeah, thank you.